For more information on this podcast, please visit michaeljbolton.com. This is an Alexandrian Media podcast. Hello. Welcome. 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 Let me show you to your seat. Front row center. Courtesans are interesting because they're not a category we have in our culture. We would tend to lump courtesans, they're a kind of sex worker, but in many cultures, courtesans exist as a separate concept. And if you told a courtesan she was a prostitute, she'd slap you. In the late 19th and early 20th century, it was probably the leading cause of death. As living conditions improved, that began to have an impact on tuberculosis even before we had good drugs available to us. The flowers truly are perfect. They are so smooth, they are so waxy, the colors are so clear. They can be delicate, but at the same time, the larger ones can be absolutely boisterous and loud with their color. Both times I went into the sex industry, I did it because I wanted to. The first time out of curiosity and the second time out of financial need. So it's always important to be mindful that people do this work for lots of different reasons. Some of them are sexy and fun, and some of them are really dire. You have to play your strongest card to find something different from the other sopranos. You cannot imitate them. I worked to find the soft sounds, the mezza voce, the pianissimos, which they describe to my soul. Welcome to this very special edition of Front Row Center. I am Mike Bolton, and thanks for listening. If um, you haven't yet done so and want to learn a little bit more about me or this podcast, visit my website at michaeljbolton.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you'll be alerted every time there's a new episode. Also, we have a playlist on Spotify for this opera. You can find the link in the description on the landing page for this episode. And also, we have a bunch of audience participation Q&A uh, questions for this podcast as well. And while you're there, let me know what your favorite recording of La Traviata is. And um, I'll announce the results of that question in the next episode. If this is your first time with Front Row Center, well, thanks for finding us and listening. Our audience is growing, which is very exciting. And the key for this podcast is to take a look at an opera as if you were sitting in the front row of the theater, literally behind the conductor, to see and hear different details that you wouldn't normally be aware of if you're all the way upstairs and standing room, for example. And I'll be honest, I have been working on this episode for over six months. And after finally booking a crucial interview, it is finally ready for publication. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a bit. We publish monthly, and this month's episode is on Verdi's La Traviata, an iconic work in so many ways and a beloved work as well. In the 2022-2023 season, the opera had over 20 productions just in the United States, so that's amazing. In digging into this opera, we'll look at 19th century courtesans and Marie Duplessis, the real-life courtesan who tangentially inspired La Traviata. Uh, that conversation is with Professor Andrew Lear. Uh, Violetta in the opera famously dies from tuberculosis, so of course we have to talk to an infectious disease expert. And for that, we have Dr. P.J. Brennan. Then, horticulturalist Carl Gersons shares what makes the camellia Violetta's favorite flower so special. And then, sex worker advocate Lola Davina talks about her journey as a sex worker and gives us a little bit of a reality check on the sex work in the 21st century. And then finally, today's reigning Violetta, having sung the role over 300 times, 
Herman Eliyahu is with us on Front Row Center. So exciting. Stick around. It's going to be a great episode. La Traviata was inspired by the book La Damo Camellia, and you may recall the multiple film adaptations of the book. The most famous is probably the 1936 movie starring Greta Garbo. The book was written by Alexandre Dumas-Fils, one of the lovers of Marie Duplessis, who was one of the most well-known courtesans in 1840s France. The two of them were together for about three years and parted ways maybe six months or so before she died of tuberculosis at the age of 23. And to talk more about the role of courtesans in 19th century France and Marie Duplessis is Professor Andrew Lear, a leading scholar on the history of sexuality, a master guide, and the founder of Shady Ladies Tours. He has a bachelor's from Harvard and a PhD from UCLA. Professor Lear is one of the foremost authorities on the erotic in Greek and Roman art. He has taught at Columbia, NYU, and Harvard, where he won the Harvard Certificate for Excellence in Teaching four times. Well, when doing a podcast on La Traviata, of course, we have to talk about Marie Duplessis, who was the historical figure on which the opera ultimately was based. And I'm thrilled to be joined by Professor Andrew Lear. Thank you for being on Front Row Center. No, thanks for having me, Mike. You have um, an extensive history looking at the lives of courtesans throughout time. Tell me a little bit about that. Courtesans are interesting because they're sort of not a category we have in our culture. We would tend to lump courtesans, they're a kind of prostitute, some very broad kind of sex worker. But in many cultures, courtesans exist as a separate concept. And if you told a courtesan she was a prostitute, she'd slap you. So it's a very separate concept. A prostitute, let's forget that there are male prostitutes because there are not male courtesans. A prostitute is a woman who is available for sex to probably any customer or most customers for money. Whereas a courtesan is a woman who is available for charming company to certain very elite men in return for gifts. And if there could well be a sexual relationship, but that's not really what's up front and center. Certainly in some cases, I'm sure money passed hands, but in big sums, not like money passed hands, like you do this, I give you that. No money, like, oh, I'll buy this house for you. A courtesan might have a couple of customers. I think it's closer to a mistress than it is to a prostitute, but it's not a mistress of one man. It's a mistress who is generally acknowledged as possibly being available, maybe not to you, but perhaps you. Where does this history come from? Where do courtesans have their origin? First of all, I should say there were courtesans in lots of cultures. I mean, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, uh, classical China, Japan, India, skip over the Middle Ages, Renaissance, Europe, stretching up into the early 20th century, probably. Um, And I think that it has a lot to do with the structure of marriage in all of those cultures. And it's kind of a collaboration between families in a way. And so you do have to be nice to your wife, at least nice enough to have children. But you certainly are not in love with her unless you're very lucky and that just happens to occur. And so your sexual and romantic life is going to take place elsewhere. Now, that could take place with a mistress. 
because this is it's an important concept in all of these cultures, and these women are very highly in view. If you read La Dame aux Camélias, he takes it for granted. I mean, there's never a second question about the idea that an elite young man falls in love with a courtesan. It's just what you do. Certainly, you can sleep with prostitutes. That's acknowledged. But no one falls in love with someone they're paying. But there are these kind of elegant ladies at the opera that you can't really get near. So they, they are the natural person to fall in love with. What was life like for a young woman who found herself in Paris, and, and how would she fall into becoming a courtesan? First of all, I should say Marie Duplessis, in some ways, is one of the stories we know better. So I may be talk, I may more or less be talking about her, even when I'm not talking about her. In her case, we run into a real problem, which is that the uh, there is a blend of legend and fact that's very hard to tease apart. But we do know a little bit about her childhood and how she got into Paris. She was a very poor farm girl, illiterate, sexually, most certainly abused, probably sexually abused. Um, she was kind of dumped in Paris by her alcoholic, brutal father. I think she was 13. She became what most girls did, which is she was a laundress. But then she was what was considered pretty at that time. Um, it's very much the romantic period. So, you know, girls, in order to look attractive, would stay up all night so they'd have circles under their eyes. Anyway, she was very fragile, very white, very pale. She had TB, which probably made her ever more attractive um, by the standards of her time. She could think rock star, rock star looks. So she quickly climbed out of her position as a laundress by being supported by various men. Started just with a, you know, a local au bourgeois guy who set her up in an apartment. Even he was giving her money to to play, which was hundreds of times what she would have earned laundering. But then she she rapidly climbed much higher uh, till the point where she was a countess. Courtesans were educated. There were a woman with whom you could have an actual conversation. But a question which is impossible to answer in earlier times is how did they get an education? Mm-hmm. Whereas with Marie Duplessis, we know she became the mistress of a quite prominent, if not necessarily massively wealthy aristocrat, a guy named Agenor de Guiche, very good looking, kind of the dashing aristocrat of his day. He paid for her to have all kinds of different lessons. She had, you know, French lessons, reading lessons, dancing lessons, piano lessons. She had them all. Presumably, she must have been brilliant because she went from being an illiterate farm girl to being the lady who led one of the leading salons in Paris and was like Liszt's great love in like four years. What would, what would her day have been like? Assuming that she actually has a lover, and so she's up kind of late. They're up till four in the morning and getting up at noon. They had candles, giving a party, being at a party. You know, they, Everybody went to the opera or the theater literally every night. And social life started after. You'd go out to the Café Anglais and have oysters and champagne until two or something like that. So she was up, she'd probably get up very late, spend a great deal of time dressing. You obviously have a lady's maid pinning everything and doing your hair and blah, blah, blah. Then you go out and ride in the park, ride your carriage in the Bois de Boulogne and salute some people, but not everyone. And of course, young men who are in love with you are lining the street if you're Marie Duplessis. Um, and then, you know, eventually this comes to being various kind of meals and 
operas and parties. Who would have been invited to one of her parties besides Looney, the gentleman? She was very high end. Um, the people who came to her parties were of Paris society. Uh, and I should say this is probably typical of a high end courtesan. Uh, there are two social worlds. There's Le Monde, the social world, and Le Demi-Monde, the, the sort of twilight side of society. The women are different. In Le Monde, you have Les Grandes Dames, and in the Demi-Monde, you have Les Grandes Horizontales. But the men are the same. Men just go back and forth between the two worlds. <laughs> but in, in, and I think it's particularly in her case, uh, she was very good friends. I can't remember all of their names. The um, editor, possibly founder of the Figaro, was one of the people who hung out with her a lot. And Liszt, in particular, was very into her. Liszt was the, you know, if we have an it girl, he was the it boy. They don't think that anyone was so ridiculous and vulgar in the 19th century, but I mean, Liszt was totally like going to a Rolling Stones concert. He would throw his sweat-soaked gloves to the audience and women would faint. <laughs> <laughs> they were totally Mick and Bianca Jacker. <laughs> 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 they were. But I know the director of the opera was also somebody who was, was very much part of her world. So at these parties, you know, I think about was, the, the gambling sequence in the opera Traviata. Would there have been gambling, What would, uh, dancing, and what would have, would have been going on in these yeah, parties? Absolutely. All kinds of games, games are going on. And there are also other women, you know, are not the women of high society. So, you know, here she is having various professional relationships with these men. Was it unusual for a courtesan to fall in love with their clients? Oh, did she? That's what she that's what she does in the opera. I don't know that she did in real life. She married Perigot, but I think she married him because she thought being a countess would be good for her image. Marie Duplessis died of tuberculosis at the age of twenty-three on February third, eighteen forty-seven. Her husband, the Comte de Perigot, and one of her past lovers were with her, allegedly. And within a few weeks of her death, her belongings were auctioned off to pay for her debts. And she's buried in Montmartre Cemetery in Paris. And that, and that funeral was attended by hundreds of people. Thanks to Professor Andrew Lear for that great insight into courtesans and Marie Duplessis. You can find out more about him at ShadyLadies.com. So what do you think of this podcast? If you go to the Spotify page, there's a Q&A section where you can leave your comments or re leave a review of the podcast in the comment section on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And as always, you can email me at mike at michaeljbolton.com. Is it safe to say that we're in a post-COVID era? Maybe not 100%, but we've experienced the brunt of it. It's still a devastating ailment claiming the lives of a thousand people per week. But before there was COVID, there was another infectious disease still very much with us today, tuberculosis. It is an ailment that kills Violetta in La Traviata. And to tell us more about it is Dr. P.J. Brennan from Penn Medicine in Philadelphia. He's the chief medical officer and senior vice president of the University of Pennsylvania Health System. Dr. Brennan is a fellow of the Infectious Diseases Society of America and the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. 
Dr. Brennan has chaired the Healthcare Infection Control Practices Advisory Committee, which advises the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Centers for Disease Control Prevention on a broad range of issues related to control of infectious diseases, among other numerous distinctions. Well, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. P.J. Brennan, who is a chief medical officer at Penn Medicine here in Philadelphia, who has a specialty in infectious diseases. Who else to talk to about tuberculosis than someone who deals with, with infectious diseases? Dr. Brennan, thanks for being on Front Row Center. My pleasure, Mike. We don't think of tuberculosis as being a contemporary illness, but it's certainly very much a present today. I know I've gotten tuberculosis uh, tests and things like that. How would you state the prevalence of tuberculosis today? Well, Mike, I would say that the prevalence of tuberculosis uh, in the United States is quite low at the present time. That was not always the case. It was one of the leading causes of death uh, in the, uh, if not the leading cause of death in the late uh, 19th and uh, early decades of the of the 20th century. But globally, it's still very much uh, a public a public health threat. And you know, there's a very sort of romanticized version of what tuberculosis is, thanks to operas like Traviata, Bohème, and even music or the movie musical Moulin Rouge. Can you tell us a little bit about the disease itself? Tuberculosis is a is a germ that exists in a in a family of germs, most of which are quite harmless or mostly harmless, uh, and they're called mycobacteria. They um, mostly exist in in soil and and water. The most uh, troublesome of all is uh, Mycobacterium tuberculosis, the pathogen that causes TB, and uh, it's a germ that is spread uh, person to person. It is coughed into the air by someone who is actively uh, infected with, with tuberculosis and has active disease in a place in their airways where the germ can be expelled and inhaled by, by somebody else. Most people, most people who are exposed don't get infected. Most people who get infected don't develop active disease. Perhaps 10% will develop, uh, develop active disease, and most of that will occur in the first year after infection. So it's a it's a, it's a germ that can come into the system, come into a person's system, and remain dormant or latent for a, for a long period of time and then reactivated. Uh, but in some cases, particularly among people who have compromised immune systems, they can get sick uh, relatively quickly after exposure and have, have quite serious consequences of, of the infection. Uh, but all of the serious consequences, as we see in La Traviata, are not restricted to those people who are immunocompromised. People with normal immune systems can have serious consequences as well. What's the percentage of someone getting tuberculosis after having been exposed? Because especially as we've all been through COVID and we all have these, uh, this other reality or knowledge about infectious disease, I'll watch an opera like Traviata or Boheme and I think, oh my gosh, Mimi's going to infect everyone in the room. But that's not necessarily the case. Right. After exposure... As many as 10% of the individuals exposed may become infected. Of those, perhaps 1% will go on and develop, develop active disease, and most of that is going to be in the, in the first year. So um, you know, most people do not get seriously ill with it, but when they do, it can be um, you know, quite a serious condition. Younger people, infants in particular, can develop a disseminated form of tuberculosis that can 
uh, affect the spinal cord and the brain and can, uh, you know, disseminate uh, throughout the body. That can also happen in individuals with HIV infection or who are taking medications to suppress their immune system so they don't reject transplanted organs. A relatively small percentage of people exposed get sick, but, you know, some, some seriously so. The, the, the big challenge with, with tuberculosis has been, and this, this has been a challenge since the beginning of pharmaceutical treatment for tuberculosis, has been the emergence of drug resistance. It was learned really through trial and error that unlike a strep throat, for example, where you can take penicillin and quickly be cured of it and the germ is eradicated, using a single drug for tuberculosis leads to the development of drug resistance. And so over time, drug resistance has become quite prevalent around the world, uh, in part because of the uh, lack of accessibility to all of the drugs that can be used to treat tuberculosis. When drug resistance develops, it, it becomes harder to treat. The treatments are more toxic to the individual, and it takes longer to treat. It has a profound impact on, uh, on the health of uh, the individual. And at one point, historically, I guess, was there sort of a, a real turning point in a decline in tuberculosis cases compared to when we get to maybe some drug-resistant um, variants of it? Tuberculosis has, a, has a, an interesting history. Um, in, the, in the late 19th and early 20th century, there was, there was a lot of tuberculosis. As I mentioned earlier, it was probably the leading cause of death, although it wasn't always um, fully identified as, as being tuberculosis. People might have had lung cancer or something else, and uh, you know, it appeared to be tuberculosis, and they died in a clinically similar, similar fashion. But as, as nutrition and general living conditions in society improved from the 19th century into the 20th century, that began, began to have an impact on tuberculosis and the incidence of tuberculosis even before we had good drugs available to us. You know, the, the first of those was um, discovered in the 1950s and uh, implemented for therapy, uh, therapy then. That had a very positive effect. Some people were cured with it. Uh, but quite quickly, tuberculosis became resistant to, to streptomycin, and additional drugs had to be discovered and then deployed. And now the standard treatment involves the use of four drugs initially until we know the, the susceptibility pattern of the germ. And at that point, we start to tailor therapy towards the, the drugs that are, that are active against the germ. The other thing I should say about tuberculosis is that it's different than a lot of other germs uh, in that its its doubling time is quite slow. It's a slow growing organism, um, and and that's characteristic of most of the uh, members of the mycobacterial family. Uh, there are a few that are referred to as rapid growers, but compared to other bacteria, they don't grow all that rapidly. Tuberculosis can take uh, several weeks to grow in the laboratory, and so it's that slow turnover, that slow growth, that requires uh, the long-term treatment with tuberculosis. You know, um, a few days of treatment with penicillin will cure streptomycin, will, excuse me, will cure um, strep throat. Uh, but uh, treatment for tuberculosis requires uh, months of uh, multidrug therapy because it, it takes that long to eradicate. And, uh, you know, up to a certain point, uh, if you stop short, the likelihood of a relapse occurs. And when relapse occurs, it's oftentimes with a drug-resistant organism. I did not realize that at all. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a long it's a long course of treatment. That's fascinating. So for for a patient like Violetta, in the mid eighteen hundreds, what would the uh, treatment have been like for her at that time? Well, it, it probably would have been um, rest, and uh, that would have been in the period uh, in in the mid eighteen hundreds. That was, I would say, just well. First of all, it was just prior to the recognition of the um, uh, bacterial pathogen that uh, that causes TB, mycobacterium tuberculosis. But it was also prior to the uh, development of the sanatorium movement. And um, uh, there were certainly you know, many, many sanatoria in, in Europe, uh, but they, they developed um, in the second half of the, of the 19th century. You know, to get back to Violetta, at that time, the theory of disease was about, was about humors and being exposed to sunlight and fresh air and good nutrition was the, um, was the method of treatment. So, you know, so rest really was, was what she probably would have been prescribed at, uh, at that point in time. And, you know, and, and some of those things did have a salutary effect on, uh, on the disease, but mostly going into a spontaneous remission and having, uh, which, which could happen. If there's, um, I don't know if it's a glimmer of hope, but if what's the positive, is there a positive message about, I don't know, healthcare or tuberculosis that we can, we can share? Yeah, I think there is. Um, you know, I think what we've shown is that we can dramatically reduce the incidence of a disease that was probably the most common cause of death, you know, just over a hundred years ago. But it, you know, it takes a society that has the wealth and the organization and the infrastructure to be able to do that in Western Europe and in the United States and in, a, and in Japan and a few other places, uh, you can do that. But it's going to take a lot of public health investment in many other places that, that you know, are not organized in the same way, don't have the same wealth that uh, uh, some of these Western, some of our Western societies do. Uh, to do in order to reach it. Fascinating, fascinating information. And thanks for uh, sharing all of this information. I think it, it'll be a, sort of a uh, uh, enlightenment for a lot of listeners for the podcast. Dr. PJ Brennan from Penn Medicine here in Philadelphia. Thanks so much for being on Front Row Center. Thanks for having me, Mike. Pleasure to be here. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, there were 8,300 reported TB cases in the United States in 2022, a rate of 2.5 cases per 100,000 persons, and up to 13 million people are estimated to be living with a latent TB infection in the U.S. Thanks to Dr. P.J. Brennan for shedding some light on tuberculosis. I know I certainly learned a few things that I didn't know before about tuberculosis. As uh, for regular listeners, as you may know, I live in Philadelphia and about 35 miles outside of downtown Philly is Longwood Gardens, a uh, 1,000 acre conservatory and gardens that attract over 1.5 million people annually. And I spoke with their renowned horticulturalist, Carl Gersons. He's the section gardener at Longwood Gardens responsible for many of the changing displays in the grand four acre conservatory. Carl has a BS in Ornamental Horticultural from Mississippi State University and completed academic internships at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida and at the Fioli Estate in San Francisco's Bay Area. 
He also has a personal connection to camellias. Well, we are thrilled to be joined by Carl Gersons. He is the East Conservatory Manager at Longwood Gardens here outside of uh, Philadelphia, one of the most prestigious conservatories and gardens in the country and in the world. Carl, thanks for being with us to talk about the very important flower in La Traviata, the camellia. Absolutely. Well, it's such a pleasure to be here with you today. And you know, I've been growing plants since I was at least 10 years old. And I, of course, have been familiar with camellias literally since the day I was born. And now here at Longwood Gardens, one of my areas of responsibility in the conservatory is our non-hardy camellia collection. How long have you been with Longwood Gardens? And what can you tell me about the organization itself? Great. Well, Longwood is one of the premier horticultural display gardens in the world. I've been here at Longwood Gardens for 25 years, and Longwood has been in existence since 1906, when our founder, Pierre DuPont, purchased this property from a Quaker family, and they were deeded the property from William Penn. So Longwood's really only had two owners. Longwood currently covers a little over a thousand acres. And again, our conservatories, our glass houses, cover about two acres. So Longwood, of course, is extremely well known for our springtime flowers, our summertime fountains, our autumnal chrysanthemums, and of course, the Christmas display, which brings in the most number of people during the month of December. And in the conservatory, again, there's 365 days of the year of horticultural beauty. What makes the camellia section so important at Longwood? Well, that's such an interesting thing that, you know, camellias are the topic of today's talk because camellias have been so important to Longwood since our inception. When Pierre DuPont built one of the first conservatories back in the 1920s and 30s, you interestingly could dig and ship camellias directly from Europe. So Pierre DuPont actually brought over full-size plants from England and France to go into the conservatories here at Longwood. And if you can imagine an entire conservatory, 100 feet wide and 212 feet long, filled with those spring-blooming plants, it definitely makes you forget that winter was ever even a season. Is there any particular challenges of taking care of them, either in a conservatory setting or outside? That's a great question. If you want to grow the full gamut of camellias, uh, then you'll certainly want to have either a warmer climate. And we're talking Norfolk, Virginia is where camellias start to just grow like mad and all the way down into central Florida, all the way over into Texas. So the entire southeast is amazing for camellia culture. You run the risk sometimes of having those late spring freezes, which might freeze the blossoms off. But again, if you've got a conservatory, then those blossoms will be protected. And oftentimes, people who grow camellias for show will grow them undercover. Maybe not a full greenhouse, but something to protect them from the wind or the rain. So those blossoms are absolutely perfect. And one thing I love about camellias is their names. You know, there are hundreds of named camellias out there. And so many of their names include the word perfection. Uh, Taylor's Perfection, Nuccio's Perfection. And I think, you know, the reason for it, when you look at them, the flowers truly are perfect. They are so smooth. They are so waxy. The colors are so clear. And they can be delicate, but at the same time, the larger ones can be absolutely boisterous and loud with their color. 
So camellias, I think, appeal to so many different kinds of people, whether you want that quiet, demure perfection, or if you want something that's you know big and loud and super colorful. Your passion is fascinating and exciting at the same time. Camellias were one of the first plants I grew. I just remember growing up on the farm, one of my neighbors, she had one camellia plant. And it literally, I remember to this day exactly where it was. When it flowered, I was in awe. And here I am, not even 10 years old. And I would just stare at that shrub because it had the most ginormous white. White's not my favorite color. But still, it was a beautiful blossom. And they're hanging on there in the dead of winter and nothing else around me was blooming. And I was just in awe that this plant could create something so beautiful at a time of year that I didn't even know how much I needed that. But those camellias, they were just jaw-dropping. So for people who don't necessarily have access to Longwood Gardens in person, are samples of the camellia collection available online? No doubt about it. Longwood has a wonderful website, almost 5,000 pages on our website. So you can browse through there and learn about any of our horticulture, our education, our performing arts. If you want to learn about a specific plant, you just type that into the search engine and we have archive pages through our blogs. Uh, you can go to our social media and you can type in a certain type of plant in our social media and it'll pull up any type of information we have on something like that as well. And then, of course, when you find interesting people uh, like myself that have a passion for horticulture, then, of course, I've been documenting what's been happening at Longwood for years via my social media pages and also my Flickr pages. So you can see really the history of Longwood's community collection uh, through my website, carlgerstens.com, where I document my work, these displays that I do, so that I can learn about when things flower, what looks best together, perhaps something that shouldn't be combined again. And uh, we only learn by you know, remembering what we've done in the past. So I do have a passion for collecting those memories and then sharing That's those great. with others. That's great. So you'll find me in lots of different outlets. Just search my name, Carl with a K, Gersons. And I've been sharing horticulture for a number of years and always have a passion for connecting to others that have an interest in that as well. Amazing. This has been so enlightening, Carl. I can't thank you enough for being on Front Row Center to talk about what is clearly your passion. And, and thanks for sharing that passion with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to seeing you at Longwood and sharing my love for horticulture when you come. Thanks again to Carl Gersons and for all of that great information about camellias and Longwood Gardens, a really wonderful place to visit. Um, Google Camellia House and Longwood Gardens to learn more about the flower at Longwood, or just visit longwoodgardens.com, or better yet, go there in person. The historical Marie Duplessis was also fond of the flower, and in the book, The Girl Who Loved Camellias, The Life and Legend of Marie Duplessis, by Julie Cavanaugh, the author says that according to existing florist bills, she really did love camellias. Part of the Duplessis myth is that she would wear a red camellia when she was not available to see her clients. Well, you know what? Cavanaugh found recurring bills for the Camellia Imperial, a red Camellia, my goodness. Two very interesting interviews coming up, unfortunately, for time chunks ended up on the cutting room floor. But if you are interested in hearing the full interviews, please let me know by visiting the Q&A page on Spotify. Again, the link is in the description for the podcast. So the reason it took so long to get this podcast together was because I really wanted to have someone associated with the sex industry as part of the podcast. 
No, Violetta was not a prostitute, but a courtesan, still it's, it's easy to jump to assumptions that physical intimacy was the primary part of her job description. Plus, the sex industry has changed a lot in the past oh, 150, 200 years since the book was written. Well, you know what? After a couple of near misses with women active as sex workers today and visits to all sorts of escort websites, I went to Twitter. So I typed in hashtag sex worker and quickly found Lola Davina, a retired sex worker, but a sex worker advocate and the author of a series of books on the sex work industry, thriving in sex work. On top of that, coincidentally, she loves opera. Cha-ching, I hit the jackpot, right? But uh, goodness, what a wonderful, insightful, and engaging conversation we had. Lola Davina, thank you so much for being with us on Front Row Center. I am so excited for this conversation. Oh, well, thank you, Mike. I'm so delighted to be here. And thank you for inviting me. Talking about two things I love, I guess both are lifelong passions, the sex industry and uh, opera. That's fabulous. I love that. You know what? You told me that you were just at an event for San Francisco Opera. Tell us about that event. Yeah, I think it was November. Yeah, the San Francisco Opera, they put on this swank evening. It was really fun. It was La Traviata. And uh, they performed in full costume, the first act. All of San Francisco was invited to show up in all of their finest and all of their frippery. Um, and San Francisco never disappoints when they have the opportunity to show up and dress. And uh, folks were dressed from period appropriate hoop skirts and wigs and things to all, you know the latex and the leather and the chains, um, <laughs> the full range. Right. Uh, people looked amazing and uh, they were there to party and to just appreciate a part of what that particular opera is about, which is the demimonde and uh, how adults like to rub up against each other and have sexy fun like that. It was fun. It was like it was like they invited San Francisco to live inside this opera for a little while. Amazing. Yeah. You want, that's a, that's kind of a good jumping off point. I was looking at your uh, website before we started and I copied some things and actually they are your little introductions to two of your books. And on your website, you say, I wrote the Thriving in Sex Work series to offer the self-care advice I wished I'd had back when I was working to cope with the ways the sex industry made me feel good and bad, beautiful, ugly, stupid, smart, rich, poor, exposed, invisible, fabulous, and powerless. Sex work is easy money? Hardly. The adult industry is riddled with pitfalls and dangers. Erotic labor is often emotionally demanding, draining, and complex. And it can be hard to know who to turn to for advice on keeping yourself safe and sane. And that's that's what you do now, now that you're retired from actual sex work. You're this advocate and educator and teacher and everything else. Thank you. And it's always it's always powerful to have my <laughs> my own words read back to me. Yeah, I mean, I was in, I was involved in the sex industry for uh, about eight years over a 15-year period. I, I did it in my early 20s, and then I went away for a little while, and then I came back to it in my 30s. I started out stripping, which for many folks is a gateway drug. It's, it's sort of the entry into the sex industry for a lot of people. Uh, I was professional dominant for a couple of years, uh, but then when I discovered escorting, that was really my jam. That's what I liked doing, and, and that's what I ended up doing the most of. Then when I retired in my early 30s, I, I you know I walked away from the industry the way a lot of people do, thinking that maybe that that chapter of my life is over. But I found myself compelled in my late 40s. I'm 55 now, by the way. Um, 
really thinking a lot about those experiences with the distance and the hindsight and you know the, the you know all the, all the wisdom of age and really thinking about how would i have done things differently what would i say to my younger younger version of myself what would i say to younger workers who are out there um because for better or for worse the industry is overwhelmingly dominated that on the supply side by young people that's that's for the most part who gets into the industry certainly there is demand for older folks but overwhelmingly it's young people and I can't speak for anybody else, but my sexuality wasn't fully formed when I was in my early 20s. And even in my 30s, I, I struggled with a, a lot of emotional impacts uh, you know, around my sexuality and especially monetizing my sexuality, right? So so the, the, this confluence of money and um, sexuality and uh, doing that kind of work for a living and knowing just how impactful it is on your emotions, on your emotional well-being. And so, yes, I, I sat down to write um, Thriving in Sex Work because there hadn't been a self-care book written yet for the sex worker community addressing those concerns, just what it takes to, to do that kind of erotic labor and yeah. emotional labor. So one of the things that um, has really intrigued me about, I, I just saw Traviata back in like January or so. And one of the things I kept thinking of was, you know, when you're in this work, how do you how do you protect yourself emotionally for a variety of potential situations? Right. The sex industry is fraught with a lot of peril. I mean, um, unfortunately, um, full service, what they call full service sex work or what we you know, might call prostitution or escorting or is, is illegal in most of the United States. Only It's only legalized in certain counties in Nevada. So to start with, uh, a lot of folks are operating under laws that make consensual sex work when you're living off the legal grid you don't have protections um in the same way that that ordinary folks would have if you were run up a, a situation where you were being stalked or assaulted or robbed it's not like you can run to the police and say hey you know this is what happens happened to me can i get some kind of legal redress so um but even if even if you had that there's still all of the emotional vulnerability that goes into being sexual with people that you don't know. And when you add money into the equation where you say, my job is to sexually satisfy someone for money, there are age-old protections that people try to to build into doing this line of work that you know folks almost exclusively don't use their real names. So there's kind of the sense of that there's this separate part of themselves, there's this persona or this separate entity who's doing this and then you have your air quotes real life um that's separate and distinct from the line of work that you do a lot of people operate with a lot of secrecy they may not tell family loved ones landlords future job prospects what they're doing so kind of living in the shadows and in, in, in that regard it's a lot of um guarding it's a lot of self-protection and it's not helped by the fact of the stigma that's attached to sex work, right? So over and above whatever emotional or, or physical uh, danger you might be in interacting with a client, there's also kind of the broader stigma, the broader um, uh, opprobrium against sex work that's out there, that sex workers are somehow dangerous or they're unstable or they're unreliable or they're dirty or they're, so, you know they're mentally ill, that there's all these things wrong with someone who would do sex work. 
which is ridiculous. Um, I mean, if, if all of a sudden everyone who has ever done some sex work were to come out, it would be hundreds of thousands, if not right. literally right. millions of people at some point have done a little this and that, done a little stripping, you know, pick somebody up and got paid for it, whether or not you're doing it formally. There's a lot of people out there who have transacted sex for money or for drugs or to live in, live inside. To do that, that's just part of the human condition. But if you do it in this certain way, then you you fall off the cliff. You are you're no longer protected or or seen as inside the charmed circle of of polite society. Looking at your bio and thinking mm-hmm. about um, Marie Duplessis, who's the inspiration for mm-hmm. uh, the role of uh, Violetta and whatnot, both of you were sort of like ambitious when mm. they came to uh, and very empowered in your career trajectory versus say saying something about like sex trafficking which was oh, not right. which is definitely a side of the industry For but sure. definitely not how you came into it right and it's always really important when we're having this discussion to be aware of the full spectrum of 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 um consent and um and power that each individual worker might find themselves at any given moment on that spectrum and um it's also important to realize that individual folks might have more or less power over the course of their lives doing this work. Um, I was very highly privileged. Both times I went into the sex industry, I did it because I wanted to, the first time out of curiosity and the second time out of financial need. If you put at the one end of a spectrum, folks who are just doing this because they absolutely love it or they think that it's a calling or because it's it's just fun, it's one of the ways that they, they sexually enjoy themselves all the way on the other end, you're talking about folks who are being trafficked, folks who quite literally don't have any choice. They have other people forcing to, them to do this work. Folks who are doing this at a subsistence or survival level, right? So that maybe the the um, the forces that are pressuring them aren't other people, but it's capitalism and the prerogatives to live indoors. Uh, and like I say, folks can move across that spectrum over the course of their lifetime. So it's always, it's always important to be mindful that people do this work for lots and lots of different reasons and some of them are sexy and fun and some of them are really dire and really really tough the the sex worker activist community the kind of the tip of the spear that a lot of us really want to talk about are safe working conditions and starting with that is decriminalization of of the work itself because no one's life was ever made safer by criminalizing them you know thank you for saving me for my choices thank you for saving me from people who are forcing me to do this work by making me the criminal and just acknowledging that people want sex. They're willing to pay for it. This has been true from the beginning of time. So it would be nice if we kind of took that layer of danger and forcing sex workers into the shadows off. Being a criminalized person does not help anyone. And and I don't just want to talk necessarily about full service sex work. This permeates the entire sex industry, even if you're making porn or you're you know stripping all these other things because of this stigma that that's attached to it all sex workers are kind of operating under this this shadow mm-hmm. of, uh, doing something wrong doing something that's out, outside the law and therefore your life doesn't it doesn't matter as much and that you don't have as, as many legal protections right. Right, right, right but i think more broadly it's just watching how sex work is becoming more normalized more humanized, kind of woven into the fabric of society. And just this acknowledgement that lots and lots and lots of people, especially with 
especially now online with camming. Yeah, right, right. 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 Um, there'll be an entire generation of people, you know, folks in their twenties and thirties now, who have sold naked pictures of themselves and pictures of themselves masturbating on the internet. Yeah, it's it's been really fascinating um, to see people that were the contestants on reality programs who now have OnlyFans pages. Right, OnlyFans. It it just demonstrates that been normalized. I just was watching last night this film called Hardcore. It's uh, I think the film was shot in 1979. It stars George C. Scott and his daughter. The daughter disappears and she swept into this underbelly of porn and exploitation. And it's really, really dark. And looking back on that and thinking like, damn, the way the industry is, is, is portrayed is, is that the men are all apex predators bad people they're shallow exploitative harassed and the girls are dumb airheads who have no idea what they're doing with their lives and are just being kind of eaten up and munched by these men and i just have to say you know i came in a dozen years later there was nothing like what i found i found smart funny ferocious women who knew what they were doing with their lives who were sexual adventurers a lot of them were queer and they were rule breakers and ball busters. And what they wanted to do was basically what whatever society told them not to do. That was like a big, you know, F you. Of course, there were men around and you know, men who wanted to make porn and men who wanted to look at naked women and would have sex with, you know, pretty young girls and all that stuff. But I mean, then they were just dudes. I mean, they were, you know, they could be dealt with. Coming out of that mentality that the sex industry, again, is just like this giant maw that just eats people and chews them out and literally destroys them. And looking at the experience that I had, the people that I knew, and I'm not just not to say that that doesn't happen, but that was it. What would a, what would a smart person be doing in this industry? What would an educated person be doing in this industry? What would somebody who like knew what they wanted to do with their life be doing in this industry? Not even a conception in this depiction. And again, I just go back to the point, like you think of how many people from that era were sex workers then who are now just moms and dads and judges and accountants that was a part of their life and now they've moved on and done something else and now as we've moved into this internet era we have the ability to see sex workers in real time live their real and full lives right and if you're on twitter you're on OnlyFans, you're on these places you notice that oh my goodness People don't live in some like porn palace. They live in an apartment. They have cats and dogs. They have partners. They're not like living in some weird little sex bubble where all they do is have sex all day and that's all they ever do. It's like, no, they go to the grocery store and they do their laundry and do all these things. And sex work and being a sexual person is a part of their lives. Um, but they have this rich, full life on top of that. They have connection. They have community. They have hopes and dreams and aspirations beyond doing this work. And that, again, that humanization, that normalization, that sense that sex workers live amongst us and are living, air quotes, more or less normal lives, that idea uh, is recent, but it's very, very welcome. Yeah, this is incredible. Um, let's talk about your books. You have oh, sure. three, and there are a whole series of mm -hmm. self-help guides. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so my first book was was uh, Thriving in Sex Work, Heartfelt Advice for Staying Sane in the Sex Industry. And that book I really focused like a laser on the emotional labor of sex work. 
I think my key insight was when I was really looking back on it and distance of more than a decade from the work was realizing that fear, anger, low self-esteem, shame, and envy were these constant forces that were kind of always weaving their way through the work and making it difficult and painful. Um, But not just the emotions that I might have felt or any individual sex worker might feel doing that work. You're also dealing with all of those emotional states in your clients as well. And also your coworkers. That these these emotions that we that are so interwoven with being sexual people, that is what the work is about. That's what you're facing every day. That's what you're working with. So my first book was really addressing the interior state of sex work and and, and lots and lots of advice for self-care. I always joke that um, if you were to ever read my book and you could flip open to any page that whatever advice I'm giving on any given page isn't because I was so smart. It's because I made that precise mistake at some point. And now I'm going back with the benefit of hindsight and saying, hey, look, I made this mistake. I let myself down. I, I beat myself up. I did all these things. Learn from my mistakes here. You know, I very much write, wrote that first book from the standpoint of saying, look, I'm an expert because I failed a lot. You know, that's what, that's what gives me the, um, you know, the, uh, the authority, <laughs> the authority to, yeah, to be, get, uh, to be offering this advice. It's not because I was like some rock star sex worker and did everything right. It's because I made a lot of mistakes. And then I wrote two other books. One was a workbook because I really felt like folks needed individual exercises. They needed to write out their goals to envision what they wanted their career to look like, how to manage their money or mm-hmm. how to get through a really shitty day at work. And then um, I wrote a book on money and sex worker finances because another way that being outside the charm circle of polite society is all the ways that sex workers don't have access to even basic financial literacy. It's hard when your income stream is is not fully legal, but it's just hard to know. And uh, and also the money can be very erratic. So fabulous to talk to you. You have no idea. This has been so good. Thank you. Oh, you're so kind. This is awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're so very welcome. Uh, I hope it's useful for your your audience. I really felt connected to Lola, and I really had such a great time speaking with her, and I felt I learned so much. How frequently does one get to talk to someone who has been in the sex industry? I know um, that was my first time really talking to someone who did that line of work, but... And I also guess based on our conversation, I should just look around because someone in our circles has been paid for some sort of sex-related work at some point. So anyway, we um, we all have our favorite Violetas, right? And actually, you can share your favorite Violetta on the Q&A page on the Front Row Center webpage on Spotify. The link, of course, is in the description. I think on record, I wouldn't want to be without Kotrobaj or Mafo or Georgiou and of course Kalis. Not to mention other Violettas I've seen in person. One soprano at the Met stood out because she was so bad. She was so bad. I left at intermission and uh, there's an usher that I was friendly with at the time. I said to her, she could actually live at this point and I still wouldn't stay because she was so bad. Anyway, um, it was that soprano's only season at the Met. But one soprano I've wanted to see live in this role has been Ermanella Yaho. I first saw Ermanella in Philadelphia where she sang Mimi in La Bohème Blue in Torrendot and her very first Chocho San Anywhere in Madame a Butterfly. 
a role for which she is one of the world's leading exponents. And uh, she, of course, is also one of the world's leading exponents of Violetta in Traviata as well. And I think looking at opera bass, she might have the most Violettas under her belt than anyone else actively singing that role currently. Well, she brought her acclaimed interpretation of the role to the Met this past January, and I was lucky and thrilled enough to see it, and we spoke via Riverside.fm just a few days later. It was an enlightening conversation with a fascinating, fascinating artist. Erminella Yahoo, thank you so much for being on Front Row Center. It is an honor to have you on this podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me, really. Oh, and, and I know you're so busy, so it really means that much more to me. Um, I was in New York on Saturday night. You sang your 304th Violetta in La Traviata. Congratulations. And um, wow, did you ever thought it was going to be that many? No, to be honest with you, never thought I was, you know, to reach that number of uh, performances. But uh, I decided to become an opera singer when I saw Traviata for the first time in my life. And I was 14 years old. And at the time, I wanted to become, you know, a, a pop singer because it was maybe easier to, to, to become famous with five minutes of singing and let's say, you know. But uh, when I saw Traviata for the first time, I was so moved. So it was something, and I, I cannot explain that. I cannot find the w- right words, but it's like falling in love, you know, with the first sight. I swore to myself, now... Now I know I'm become uh, an opera singer, and I'm not going to die if I don't sing this character once in my life. And from that moment until now, 304 Traviatas, that still I love it. And every time you discover new details, and because it grows with you, Michael, you know, it's every time you sing that, you have to find your strong cards to play because you are not the only soprano singing a Traviata, you know, and to keep this role until my age, I don't think that I'm old, you know, after 30 years of this career, still keeping this role, you know, in my, in my, my repertoire, I, I paid attention that it grew up with me, you know, with my life experience, artist experience, you know, technique and everything. So through Violetta, I see my journey from where I started, where I, I am now and uh, the development. When was your first Violetta? Do you remember that very first? Yeah, my first Violetta, 17 years old, 17 years and, and a half, let's say. <laughs> because I loved so much and I wanted to prove to myself, yes, I can, I can sing it and I sang it in Albania. But uh, uh, it was a big challenge because I didn't have that kind of preparation, but it was my will. You know, when you are a teenager, nothing is going to stop you. You know, but it was good. It was risky. It was good because uh, in that moment you understand where uh, you have to do more work, where you have to to improve certain things, and to work still discovering you know new details, new things. You know, until now, yeah. But from seventeen years and old and a half, let's say, yeah. That's so interesting because you know you've had an entire lifetime between that moment and now, an emotional lifetime. Um, I would expect that if you're 17 and a half singing a violetta for the first time and you're thinking, oh, wow, I need to improve X, Y, or Z, but not necessarily knowing how to get there because of being so young, how has, how have you met those 
sort of technical challenges, I guess, as you've been developing the character vocally as well as emotionally. I remember that very well. You're absolutely right. Yes, I didn't have that kind of preparation. But what I felt after I sang Traviata in that age, I I couldn't talk, you know. My voice, it wasn't so clean after the singing. Uh-uh. So yes, I sang it the whole part. It was like, you know, I gave a thousand percent. But sometimes you understand with the experience that and working, you understand that you have to highlight certain moments. You cannot sing in full, full voice, big, uh, you know, from the first note to the last, because technically it's not good because you don't have that kind of energy and the, and you have to keep up for three hours. And uh, I discovered that listening other singers, you know, legends, and you see there, I understood what does it mean, pianissimo, mezza voce, fortissimo, because... It's like in our life, we are talking and sometimes when we want to highlight certain certain words, just, you know, to highlight it. Yes, I'm talking like that because I want to highlight this. And after that, we go, yes, because now we are working on the technique and the singing is exactly the same. And you get the whole drama and, okay, I'm starting and you learn that, of course, with experience. You start at the party, you take it so easy, you don't have to give 100%, you know, no, no, like, you know, you're, you're dying there, okay? You have time to die until the end. You have three hours to die. So, and where do you wrote that? Piano, mezzo forte, and to highlight the emotional as well, because when you want to highlight, especially the meeting with Alfredo, something, you know, uh, she met for the first time this guy, different different person, that the way how he approached Violetta. And, uh, okay, you have this kind of inside voice that uh, you needed another color, you know, to, to, to make it believable to the public. Yes, she she's thinking about that. She didn't decide yet that she's going to, to live this, her life and to go with Alfredo. So it worked, you know, with experience. You work emotionally and technically at the same time. So, and from that moment, to be honest with you, Michael, talking about Violetta, I, with time, I understood sometimes you have to accept your possibilities, your vocality, your, your, your strongest and weakest point, and you have to play your strongest card. To find something different, you know, from the other sopranos, you cannot imitate them. If someone has a better voice, a better instrument, maybe the facility to have the coloraturas. And I worked to find my way. And working technically, what I discovered, the soft sounds, the mezza voce, which they described to my soul as well, but to highlight certain emotions the mezzo, pia- mezzo forte, the pianissimos. And I paid attention every time, every production, having the first musical rehearsal with a conductor. By the way, it's not interesting to, to color with only one color. You have to find the details, you know. And I saw that I was more interesting when I was doing this mezza voce, just to highlight. Sometimes it started only because I felt it was my instinct. Because when you have the first rehearsal, you know, how are the singers? Well, you have to show that you have the biggest voice, strongest voice, that you can sing for this, forever. No. I, I, I didn't think that it was my way to go in that direction. 
and emotionally, you know, musically, I felt unconsciously maybe, you know, to do this a little more soft, to, to give more details, to adapt my voice to the character, to the, the emotion that I was seeing. And from that moment, I understood that I was more interesting as the opera singer than just to, to use the only color. You know what I have to say? You will always impress me more with musicality and attention dynamics than you will by volume. Always. The first time I heard you was in 2006 when you sang Mimi in La Boheme in Philadelphia. I've never heard anyone who can sing piano, pianissimo, so quietly and still have it fill a house. How did you find that? I'm, I'm pointing to my nose. How did you find that place in your in your mask? How did you how did you find your piano and pianissimo? It's harder than the fortissimo because fortissimo, when you sing the fortissimo, it's like the it comes naturally, okay, or the, the muscles are involved, the diaphragma and everything. But in pianissimo, you have to do the double of what you're doing in in, in fortissimo. Okay, in my case, I I visualize in my mind because your mind is so powerful. So if you put the attention to your mind. And you, you, you can make it happen afterwards. So in my mind, it was like I, visualizing this pianissimo, like having, you know, the mask really open inside and the sound went from my mask, from my head as well, and slide, let's say, you know, to the public. Technically, yes, I have that kind of imagination and doing that every day. I do those exercises because at the moment I discovered it was my strongest point to do those pianissimos. You have to play your cards, let's say, in that way. Yeah, that technically I do that. It's like, you know, you breathe, everything goes like visualize that, that pictures of the, uh, they describe the chakras, they have something in your head open completely and everything goes, you know, up and you have this pressure of your breathing, from that kind of breathing diaphragma the, the support is the same support or when you you do the squats, let's say, you know, or yoga. Or, yeah, that's technically. But, you know, at the same time, it's my soul that I think to be interior, how emotionally speaking as well, it helps so much. You have to put both together, both together. And uh, we cannot see each other. I can really, you know, show that you even physically, but maybe we'll have another time. Uh, to, to, to to do that because you know we're saying that with, with words maybe sounds a little odd but uh, that's in my mind all of that comes through in that sound because it is this bell like it has so many overtones and it just and, and I'm pointing to my head <laughs> that you get the sense that it's just coming yeah. out it just carries exactly. incredibly well um, you know I, you hear different singers talking about oh, I think of it as behind my eyes. I think of it as right under my nose. But it all depends on what works for you as a singer because it's just such an individual thing. Exactly. And, and I, I listen to the sound. I know where I visualize and I listen to the sound, which kind of color it should be, you know. It's something you feel, you produce the sound before the public can hear that. You visualize that. Yeah, and... Uh, and our mind, oh my God, it's so powerful. It can produce exactly the same, the same sound that you felt inside to bring that outside. You have to have courage, you know. Yes, you will make mistakes because someone is going to say, eh, to piano, or uh, we expected a forte here. But if it goes all together, that it goes with emotion, with a character, 
it becomes so powerful, Michael, more powerful than a 40cc one, let's say that. And uh, yeah. Yes, 100% agree with you. There are two bits of staging I have to talk to you about. And it was probably spur of the moment, weren't even thinking about it. One was, I can't remember if it was during the Brindy Sea or right after the Brindy Sea. You went to clink glasses with Alfredo and then you sort of faked him out and like didn't do it. And he was like, yeah. it was so funny. And I was like, that's this wonderful bit of like flirtation. And then um, also in the Aforce Louis, she hears Alfredo and most sopranos are like, oh, this sort of like afraid, you know, nervousness. And you were like, oh, isn't that sweet? And it was so honest. That was the other thing. There was so much honesty and communicativeness, very conversational singing from everybody on Saturday night. It was just such a joy to experience. You're absolutely right. Talking about my colleagues with Ismael Horde, we sang together Traviata. It was 17, 18 years ago in uh, the, our first Traviata together in Marseille. And after that in Paris, and they sang other, other productions together. And it means so much the connection that you have with colleagues. So when you have this kind of chemistry with your colleagues, you bring the best from the colleague and the colleagues is bringing the best from you. So, and it comes so natural. And when you have the colleagues like Ismael or Amar and uh, all the cast, all the team, you know, uh, because it's more powerful is if there is a connection and we work together. That even though the guy was saying, it's the energy that you create. If all together we believe in what we are doing and that everyone is putting their own energy, oh my God, that's the magic, which doesn't happen often. But when the orchestra, the conductor, the chorus, they all little roles, we put all together. We don't think, oh my God, let's hope he or she doesn't keep the high note longer or you know, the ego is there, but here it wasn't. And that's why it came through so natural, so believable, even in these little examples that you say, oh, I'm worried, or because uh, really that you need time to process, you know, even the first meeting with someone in the real life, you get a little, really, you, you fall in love, but it takes a little time to process, you know, to, you know, to, to make it yours and to react and to be believable. In thinking of Undi Felice, I was struck by how, one, it's a conversation. You know, they are, it's not really a duet until they kind of get into it. And I kept wondering or kept thinking that these little sparks of coloratura were, on one hand, flirtation for her. But then also, I almost felt like she was building a wall to protect herself as a way of, okay, here's another guy. He's come to my house every day for a year. That's just creepy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm happy. Oh my God, this is the best compliment because I felt in that way. Exactly. They are, okay, so the flirtation, but at the same time, exactly. She she wants to be protected. She they are all, She doesn't want him to be so close to her. And, but at the same time, she likes that. And, and so it's written. It's written so beautifully. And uh, maybe before... It was only flirtation for me because I was younger, I think. But after singing so for such a long time, exactly my thoughts were exactly the, the same that you that you described. Uh, you know, 
when I started Traviata last time, it was in, uh, in London and uh, with uh, the DVD. And I did so much. And I told myself, oh my God, I have to stop. I don't want to sing anymore, Violetta, because I did so much for myself. And I, I'm not interested anymore because it's not only the voice in my case. Amazing, amazing. You are incredible. It's a great pr- pleasure, Michael. And we have so much to talk and maybe to tell, you know. And I'll be more than happy if we can do other times, open. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Hermanella Yapo, acclaimed for her Chocho San, Suor Angelica, Mimi, Adriana Lecouvreur, Liu, Magda, Antonia, Thais, Manon, and of course, Violetta Valerie. Many, many, many thanks to Hermanella for sharing her time with Front Row Center. What a pleasure to speak with her, my goodness. Her complete recording of Turandot with Sandra Radvanovsky, Jonas Kaufman, and Antonio Papano was just released a few months ago on Warner Classics. Check that out. And also don't forget to check out her amazing recital on the Opera Rara label uh, called Anima Rara, or A Rare Soul. It's a great, great collection of arias and a real snapshot of her as an artist. We have a lot of thanks to give out to everyone who was interviewed for this podcast. Professor Andrew Lear, Dr. PJ Brennan, Carl Gersens, Lola Davina, and Hermon Elayajo. Really wonderful guests, all of them. And I'm so thankful that they were able to participate in this edition of this episode of Front Row Center. Our next episode of Front Row Center features Lilisa D'Amore, another favorite opera of mine and we'll have an interview with the wonderful American basso buffo Patrick Harfizzi. We'll also have a sommelier to talk about wine, uh, a relationship expert to talk about some of the challenges that Adina and Nemorino have, and then Luciana Pavarotti's American assistant who has a lot to share about the great tenor. Don't forget to visit the Spotify page for our various audience participation questions. That'll be fun. This is the first time I'm doing that. Visit my website at michaeljbolton.com to learn more about me. You can check out some of the other podcasts and lectures that I've done for the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Cincinnati Opera, Opera Philadelphia, and other organizations. Or, you know, just check out my voiceover demos. Meanwhile, look for other podcasts brought to you by Alexandrian Media, including the Composer Chronicles and Cultured But Not Really. Visit alexandrianmedia.org. And then if you have questions or comments about this, you can email me at mike at michaeljbolton.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at thunderbolton68. Oh, finally, um, I'm going to start another podcast where I interview other people named Michael Bolton. So if you are or you know someone named Michael Bolton and wouldn't mind being interviewed about this unique experience of being named Michael Bolton, email me and um, we'll see what we can uh, we can set up a time to talk. Uh, again, it's Mike at MichaelJBolton.com. Anyway, thank you for listening to Front Row Center. I hope you have enjoyed the view from this seat. I am Mike Bolton and we will see you next time. For more information on this podcast, please visit MichaelJBolton.com. That was an Alexandrian Media podcast. Thank you.